This is Payments Ground Game, where we go under the operational hood of Payments ISOs. Let's take a deep dive into the tactics you can use to strategically scale performance and your bottom line. Hi, I'm Elena Smith. I'm here with Kevin Smith. And in this episode of Payments Ground Game, we hash out this pressing question for payments companies. Is it better to build or to buy software? We cover the potential pitfalls, highlight the must-asks when outsourcing, and share our personal experiences with our own software products for underwriting and merchant settlement, Prospector and Pioneer. We take you deep into the realities of costs, timeline uncertainties, customizability, and why constant reinvestment is essential. We also talk about planning, testing, and user feedback. Join us in unraveling the complexities of software development in the payments industry. No one said it would be easy, but with the right balance, success is within reach, and we believe that. Tune in, get smarter, and let's turn challenges into opportunities. Okay, the payments industry is so specialized, it's often necessary for ISOs to use software to run their businesses. Sometimes they rely on off-the-shelf solutions from third parties that are specific to the industry. Other times they choose to build their own solution. Today, we're going to talk about everything that you might want to consider deciding to build or buy, and then also get a little bit into the nuts and bolts of the type of commitment required to build. First, let's give a little background on how we know a thing or two about this topic. So when we first started the business, we built Prospector, and that was our underwriting platform. Why don't you just give us a little bit of background about that process, Kevin, and what we built that for and kind of the technology at the time when we built that? So at the time when we built that, you know, I had just come from pipeline data. We were very big into the e-commerce area at pipeline data. So we had built an underwriting system that allowed us to do applications online, which still 10 years ago was still unusual. Most people were still getting applications in hard with hard copy. Um, so we built out Prospector with the understanding and thought process of how can we make the application process smoother, faster, uh, more streamlined, zero paper. How could we make sure that we never saw, you know, manila folders, that everything was stored online and that we could then in turn take that information that we gathered in the underwriting process and use that to board our merchants. Most people still weren't doing that 10 years ago. That So that was really kind of an interesting undertaking for us. And we built that so many years ago, and as the years have gone on, it's still essentially the same product, but I think we've done a lot of adding on to that product as we've had it. Um, we've, you know, we're all about automation, of course, so we've built in more automation. Um, we've just built in some things to like automatically board to a gateway, um, some API kind of things, some API incoming things so that um, our partners can board to it without having to get into the application itself. Uh, we still want to do a lot of things with that application, but because we built it 10 years ago, we're a little bit limited by that. Um, so that's a consideration. Um, when you build something, you always want to think about what is going to be the um, tech stack you know, that will go for as far in the future and be relevant as possible, but I'm getting a little bit of my, ahead of myself. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Let's also talk about the thing that we built five years ago, which is Pioneer. I'll let you kind of give an overview of what that does and how that was a different build than Prospector. So that was a much more robust build and a much stronger build than uh, 
Prospector. Prospector was really just how do we assemble the underwriting process and make it electronic? Pioneer is how do we take over and insource things that normally everyone traditionally outsources to TSIS or First Data or at the time it was Payment Tech or some other processor. So that was a much more robust undertaking. And quite honestly, we talk about rebuilding things. You and I, we built Pioneer five years ago and we just rebuilt half of it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing about this stuff is it's never ending. But I think the thing, the difference with Pioneer um, is Prospector is just, it's pretty basic. It's taking information, assembling it in one place. Um, You've got some little bells and whistles, but for the most part, it's very basic. Pioneer is really taking a transaction from the time that it's accepted until the time that it's paid to a merchant and all of the things that happen in between to that transaction. So all the billing for that transaction, all the risk things that can happen to that transaction. So all the accounting for that transaction. I don't know how many, (laughs) how many rules, you know, it would be interesting to know how many rules or, you know, all the logic that is a part of that application. Um, And that application for us took us, two failed attempts. It was the third that actually was successful. And like you said, we are just now having to revisit it and invest a lot back into it. It's an ongoing investment anyways, but we're having to significantly reinvest into it. So it can do some things that we want it to do now um, that we didn't think about maybe when we first built it. So we're going to get into all of these things that you might want to consider when you're thinking about buying versus building there's a lot to think about that goes into that um, decision. And so we're going to get into some of the you know specifics of the things that you should consider as you're doing that. So let's Did you bring first... the tree shredder with us today <laughs> and throw the money in it. Cause that's what you do when you're doing either of these things, really just you're going to spend money. So you need to be sure that you have the resources um, that you know you need and then have some extra that you haven't planned for because all of it is going to cost you more than, than you think it will. Elaine is trying to be very, very politically correct here. It is going to cost a shit ton more than you ever expect it's going to cost. It will take twice as long as your wildest dream. And then it will be an ongoing maintenance cost associated with that for the rest of your life. I'm not trying to scare you away, but that is. Yeah, you kind of just have to know what you're getting into, I think. And that's the point of talking about these things so you can think through them before you just jump both feet in the water and you commit to doing this, and maybe you get too far into it and realize you've run out of funds and you can't continue, that's not a great scenario. Um, Or you just end up spending way more than you ever planned to, and that puts you in a tough spot. So let's start first by talking about what happens if you buy the solution and some things that you might want to consider if you are going to buy, buy the solution and some pros and cons around that. So the first thing I think, of course, if you buy the solution, it's going to be a much shorter time to implement. The thing already exists. You don't have to do a whole lot to it to actually put it into production because someone else has already done the work of taking this or creating this product that is specific to our industry, whether it's something specifically for underwriting, the way we you know, interact with merchants, a CRM, a residual tool, et cetera. And there's people out there that, already probably are using it. There's probably help groups out there that you can find online. You know, for example, Salesforce, if you want, you know, there's a ton of people out there who teach you how to use Salesforce. Um, So there is a lot of online support out there for you and for the products generally. That's true. 
Also, these solutions are already specialized for the payments industry. So you don't have to go to the trouble of taking something that's generic and doing that work to make it applicable to payments. But then the other side to that is that if you do want to customize it a little bit more, it's really difficult. They're not going to give you usually a lot of customization options if you want to take that existing thing off the shelf and make it, you know, make it yours. And let's say you want to, you know, customize it for your specific processes or your specific processors that you work with. It's very hard to take it from what they provide in most cases to something that's specific to you. They're trying to make something that's for the mass market, um, not something that gets so specific that it excludes a lot of the market. Which was one of the problems we had when we were looking at how do, how do we get to a pioneer type solution? There are solutions out there, but they, you know, they have five billing categories or they ha they don't do accounting or, you know, they don't take into account there's new renditions of dues and assessments that are coming out every six months that you have to implement. So like Elena said, there, it's an enormous, there is some software out there, but it is very generic. Okay. The next one is budget. Of course, if you're buying something, you're likely going to know exactly what that costs or very close to what that costs because they're going to have pricing they might bill by the number of seats uh, or the amount of volume that you're sending through it. So it's a lot easier to budget for that more accurately than it is if you build something. Uh, the other thing, too, is that support is coming from someone else. So you're having to rely on somebody else supporting this product. So it's not entirely in your control if you run into issues. Um, you're going to be at somebody else's mercy. And it's great if they're great. Uh, if they're not, then that can be problematic. Let's move on to build. So when you build, the first thing always, I think, this is like building a house. They might tell you that it's going to take eight months. Just go ahead and double that um, because it's going to take longer than you expect it to, I think, in all cases. I don't know anyone who plans to build something and then they're able to accomplish it quicker than they thought. No, we've not. I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, have we had even a project inside of a build that was on time? No, we have not. Yeah, it's always just more complex than you think it is. We tend to oversimplify things a lot. And so we think it's going to be a short little project. And once you really get into the specifics of it, it's easy for it to um, you know, expand for that reason. And then also the scope creep. You start thinking about, oh, well, what if it can do this? And you start adding on features. So it's just really easy for that timeline to get out of control really quickly. The next one is similar with budget. Plan for a bigger budget. Set the budget and then expect to go over the budget. Plan for a monster budget. <laughs> you talk like somebody who's spent a lot recently on software. Oh. <laughs> it's never ending. It's never ending. And that actually brings us into our next point, which is ongoing maintenance. So you can't just build the thing and then you're going to be done with the thing. It doesn't end once you have it in production. There's a cost to maintain it. You're going to be adding features. You're going to find bugs. You're going to find things that you need to fix. So there's going to be ongoing maintenance involved. So you can't just plan for the cost of building. You plan to build it. And then you also plan for the cost of maintenance after you've built it. And people are going to walk up to you and go, but why didn't you just do this? And you're going to go, damn, they're right. <laughs> so you go change it to do it that way. 
you're always constantly doing this. It is fun and exciting though when people come and look at your stuff and you know you're going through it with them and they come up with a new idea that you hadn't thought of and you try to steal it. But it costs <laughs> money to put it into production. Or just a new way to use it that you hadn't thought about before. Maybe yeah. it's already there, but there's a new use case that you hadn't thought of until someone else kind of saw it and, you know, and shared that. So that's kind of neat. Um, as far as ongoing maintenance also to consider, is it insourced or is it outsourced? Are you going to outsource this maintenance? Because that's a lot different looking than have, than hiring somebody in to maintain it for you full time. Um, those are two really different processes that you have to think about. Um, but it's important because you have two levels of control, just like anything else. Somebody in-house is going to give you get you a lot closer to that product. You're able to make changes to it a lot more quickly. Um, but maybe if you outsource it, you have a better breadth of resources available to you because you have a team with a variety of skill sets versus one or two developers that are limited to their own skill sets. Not to mention... You know, I think because we've gone back and forth with this and we have outsourced, we have insourced at some points and outsourced again, the reliability of the outsourced team that Elena said has this breadth of knowledge, this over a, a broad base of different things, different types of programming, different uh, front end developers uh, versus back end developers versus database guys, et cetera. All this stuff that I really can't name off the top of my head, but these guys know all this stuff. <laughs> we end up most times falling back on it's better to outsource because quite honestly, it's more expensive to outsource. But in this environment, it gives you so much more experience at any given time. Not to mention, if you have two programmers that work for you full time and one of them quits, man, now you got to go find somebody, you got to bring them up to speed the amount of downtime that that's going to bring to you as a development studio or development house for software is dramatic. And you don't but, have that problem with an outsource group. Yeah. They've but, got 50 guys. <laughs> and they're picking the best from those 50, hopefully. So you get the cream of the crop if you have a great relationship with the development house that you're working with. So it all really, that's one of those things that it really comes down to the relationship. You want to have a great relationship if you are going to outsource it. You want to have a great relationship. You want to make sure they are the best of the best uh, because, man, it's expensive to not have the best. Um, you're going to spend a lot of time wasting time and resources wasting time. So you want to be really picky about who you work with. You know, we spent a lot of time kind of going back and forth because we liked one development house that was relatively inexpensive. Uh, but we had we didn't take into account the language barrier. We didn't take into account they're halfway around the world and they have a different time zone than us. And their awake time is our sleep time. And our sleep time is their awake time. Um, that really becomes difficult to work with. And I will guarantee you this because we've gone through it before. You get what you pay for. We went with a, we went with a new development group that was far more expensive than the one we had before but the new group is 10 times more productive. So the actual amount of work getting done at that rate is astronomical compared to what we had before. Absolutely. All right, let's move into some of the deeper considerations of building. Let's get really specific with this. So the first thing I'm going to say is that if you're going to build, 
it's my opinion that your needs have to be so specialized that there's no other choice other than to build. If you need just a spreadsheet, use Excel. Don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. It's not worth it. Oh, 150% agree. 150% agree. The only reason we built out Pioneer was because that was the only way we were going to take the control of our portfolio the way that we wanted to. And there is no other product out there that we could buy and manipulate. There just wasn't. And so that was the only way for us to get to that solution. And it has worked out. It's expensive as hell, but it worked out. (laughs) That's a recurring theme with this conversation. Expensive, expensive, expensive. Okay, the next thing is, do you know enough about software development to hire for it and manage this process? I think that you have to have some kind of basic understanding. It's very easy to get bamboozled in this process if you don't know at least the basics. Oh, absolutely. All right. If you're outsourcing this work, how do you hire the right team for this project? What should you look for? We talked about this a little bit. And, you know, if you are going to outsource it, what are the things that you need to make sure that you have a successful outcome? I think one of them is uh, credentials and their testimonials. Um, What projects have they worked on and what were those outcomes for those projects? Is there something tangible that you can actually look at? What was the timeline to create that product? Ask as many questions as you can to kind of dig in deep into what projects they've done and get to the outcome. The last thing I'll say about this is, look, if you can't talk to an end user that's used that development house before to build a product similar to what you're wanting to do or in the neighborhood of what you're wanting to do, or they can't give you a solid client that they've had in the past that's willing to speak on their behalf, run like your hair is on fire. Yes, absolutely. That's not a good sign. I would also ask if they use a project management framework, how do they do that? What kind of visibility do you have into how they're managing the project? Um, Whether it's a JIRA board um, you know, what are the, how are they planning for tasks to be completed and overall the project to be completed? Also, are they using best practices for development? And if you don't know what those best practices are, it's time for you to find out because if you don't, you will get burned on the other side of that. You also want to make sure that they get the documentation together for your project, that your project is being documented as it's being developed. There are lots of projects out there that are developed and they have no documentation to them. And then when you run with that product and go somewhere else with it and you hire a new development staff, that new development staff has no idea where to even start because none of it is documented. Yes. What was the design? What was the intent of the design when they, you know, coded it, the background of what is, what does this mean? You know, translating the code to human speak basically so that anyone could read it and know what the design of the product is and the intent of the um, the features and the functions of the product the next thing is thinking about what tech stack you'll build it on think about how long this technology will be relevant how well do you understand it Um, how easily will you be able to integrate it with other applications And do not be the first person on the bleeding (laughs) edge with new technology. That's a good one. I didn't think about that, but that's a really good one because you don't want to be the guinea pig for somebody else's, you know, thing that hasn't been fully tested yet. You're investing in this, in your product, 
And you don't want to go with the latest, greatest, you know, whiz bang 3000 just because it's the latest, greatest, and it hasn't been put to the test yet, especially if you've got budget considerations. You want to go with someone or something rather that has been well tested and, um, you know, has been used quite a bit so that you're not the person having to figure out that it doesn't work the way it was intended to work. Well, not only that, you don't want to pay your developers to learn a new language. Right. Yeah. You want to be sure that they are actually well-versed on whatever it is that you choose to go with. The other thing to think about is what resources will be required to host the product. Part of the um, ongoing maintenance of this product, the software product, is going to be hosting. What does that look like? How much data is involved in the thing that you're creating? And what is going to be the monthly cost to host it? What kind of oversight are you going to need into, you know, manage that hosting? Because there's a lot of different uh, dials and, you know, settings that you can adjust in the hosting. So think about that part of it as well, not just creating the product, but hosting the product once you have it live. Uh, we host everything with AWS. Uh, it's reliable. Uh, it's, they've got a great reputation. The, you know, because of the size of the product that they bring to the market, it's, relatively inexpensive. Um, used to be a lot. Now there's very few. But you do think that hosting is just kind of set it and forget it. And it's not really that way at all. You really do need to keep an eye on it because you can use your resources a little bit more wisely and tweak to keep your costs managed in that realm too. So you just want to be sure that you either learn how to do that or you have a resource that is watching that and understands how to do that. Okay, let's talk about the scenario where you build this thing for yourself and then you realize that it works so well for yourself that you want to take it to market and sell it to other ISOs, provide it to other agents. Maybe it's a POS that you want to go to the ISO agent market with. Um, you basically decide that this is something bigger than the, the needs of your company and you want to go to market with the product itself. What do you need to think about in that scenario, Kevin? How do I run a software company? <laughs> this is the thing that keeps going back and forth with us is we're very good at running an ISO. And I think we're, we understand that extremely well. We know nothing about running a software company and everything we've learned so far, we've had to learn basically by trial and error. It, you know, you've got to decide, is that going to be your core competency or not? Uh, we've kind of gone back and forth, back and forth. And we've decided right now our core competency is running an ISO. And we have this great software product that helps us do that very, very well. Um, so we kind of have held back on introducing our software out as a product to someone else. But it, it's all, if that is what your end goal is, is your end goal to be an ISO or is your end goal to be a software company or is your end goal to be a POS manufacturer? If you're if you have an ISO, but the ISO is really there to kind of help build your dream to be a POS software developer, then go be a POS software developer. If that's what you want to do. That's great. The other thing I think you need to think about too here is if you are going to go to market, you have to make sure that this works very well for yourself first. You have had to have had debugged this thing to, you know. <laughs> For a long time, you don't, the industry is small. You don't want to take this thing to market and then you have a complete failure and then everybody's talking about how it's a complete failure. That word travels very quickly. 
So you want to be sure that you've tested it sufficiently in-house before you bring it out of the house. Yeah, I would say that, you know, our industry is so small. Uh, the fear of catastrophe and the ability to recover if there was a catastrophe. Ooh, I don't know that uh, it would be difficult. If you come out of the gates and fall on your face in our industry, it's going to get around real quick and it's going to be hard to recover from that. I agree. That would be really difficult. Okay. Another thing to think about is when you're building this product, will it be relevant in the long term? Are you building to something that maybe has a very short shelf like? Like, for example, I don't know that any of us right now should be building a solution for paper checks. They're on their way out. Um, so are you building to something that's going to be around for at least the next 10 years? Because by the time you finish building, you're going to be well into those 10 years. So I always think that you need to be thinking a little bit ahead of what's you know relevant right now and what will be relevant in the future. That's why we built our system around card association fees. Not only are they here, they're here to stay and they will continue to increase. <laughs> True words were never spoken, Kevin. <laughs> All right. Are you building flexibility into the product? We kind of hinted at this just earlier, um, but thinking about ways that you can build to allow changes to the ecosystem in the future. So don't just build it thinking about the way things are today. How might things change and how can you build some flexibility into the product to allow for that change? Um, I think a great example of this is in our Pioneer product, we built for an ACH funding method but we built kind of some lanes to be able to plug in eventually in the future, a different funding method very easily. So now that we have real-time payments, we have fed. Now we have pushed a card. If we wanted to add another funding method and we were able to do that, it would be relatively easy to add it because of the way we designed it, thinking about that from the start. Absolutely. And I will say, it's very important that you go out and ask others. It's very important that you show others what you're doing, get their feedback. You need that feedback because I'm going to tell you, even with everything that we've done with our product, we still have to show it to other people to get outside of the woods. We still sometimes can't see the forest for the trees. Yes. When you're in it and you're designing and you're designing it for your own business, it's very hard to get outside of that and think bigger pictures sometime when you're so far in the weeds. Um, so I think that's great advice. All right. Overall, if there's anything that you can say, Kevin, that is, you know, words of wisdom in this realm of buy versus build and or building software, what can you tell us? What what kind of general advice can you give us? I hope you make a lot of money. <laughs> you are all about the expense of it. The expense is enormous and far more than I ever anticipated that it would be. It is by far worth it in the long run for us. At least it is for us. Uh, it has been, but God, is it expensive? <laughs> it does require a commitment because, um, you know, you're constantly writing big checks. And if you're not ready to make that commitment and you don't believe in what you're building, you can't do this. You just, there's, there's no other way around it. You can't do it. And the other okay, thing, that hold on, Elena, hold on, hold on. We've been talking about this is god awful expensive, and you're talking about we've got to write big checks. Should we let people know what it costs to build something? If you want to run those numbers, you're welcome to <laughs> share those numbers. 
Okay, you guys have heard us talk about big numbers and because big numbers to me may not be the same to somebody else, but I can tell you for us, you know, we've well invent we've well into the seven figures uh in developing our software products. And just to give people an idea of what that kind of what those numbers kind of look like. Yeah, it's not for the faint of heart, but the nice thing for us, well, I think it was a choice for us, right? We we built the payments company and and got that to where it was over the hump and it was, you know, producing dividends for us. Um, and then we were just very conservative about setting that money aside, knowing that we would want to do this. Um, so the payments company is really funding the software project for us. So it's a commitment because you're not just taking the money out of the payments company and saying, hey, I want to go buy a new vacation house or a fancy car or whatever. You're putting it into something that you can't really see, that it's a project, it's ongoing. Um, so it takes a lot of discipline to continue to commit to that. But again, if you believe in the product and you believe in the mission, uh, what you're trying to accomplish, then it's not so uh, hard to do at the end of the day. The final thing that I would say about doing something like this is just plan for the unexpected. It's not going to go exactly as you plan. As we shared earlier, we had two failed attempts on building Pioneer. If I'm honest with you, I'm going to tell you that at the end of that second one, I was kind of ready to just throw in the towel because it was so miserable. Um, talk about writing checks or money, throwing money in the tree shredder. That was absolutely what we did. But that was a lesson. And we took that lesson and applied it and went into that third experience armed with those lessons. And we were able to do it successfully, not perfectly, but at least we were able to have a successful outcome. Um, so I think that you just need to be prepared to, um, you know, take whatever comes your way, because there's going to be a lot of curveballs that come your way. I'm not so sure you shouldn't have let me buy the Ferrari. And maybe you just came up with the title for this episode, buy the Ferrari or build the software. That wraps up this episode of Payments Ground Game. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the show, please share it with others or leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. Thank you.